Welcome to the fifth season of Better News, a series of special podcasts It's All Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by the American Press Institute and the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research the American Press Institute has published as part of its Better News initiative. If you want more information about the initiative, visit betternews.org. On this episode, we're going to do something a little different. The API Table Stakes team and Trusting News recently conducted a panel about building trust with rural communities. In this episode, we're going to feature the audio from that panel, which is moderated by Joy Mayer of Trusting News. Joy talks to Sarah Nagam of the Border Belt Independent and Hadley Hinson of the Montgomery Advertiser, as well as Danny MacArthur of Gulf States Newsroom. You can find out more about this panel and all the work Better News does at betternews.org. And now, here's Joy Mayer. Hello, hello. It's nice to see you guys here today. I'm Joy Mayer. I'm the director of a program called Trusting News, where we learn as much as we can about how people decide what news to trust. And we train journalists to accept that information with humility and actively work to demonstrate credibility and earn trust in their day-to-day -day journalism. I've worked with some of you guys before, and I've worked with some of the folks on our panel here before. This topic is increasingly really, really interesting to me, and I'm so glad that we have the expertise of people who are out in the field every day covering rural communities to share with us what they are learning. So um, there are three journalists here joining me here today, and I would love to have them introduce themselves and just say a little bit about your background and what your current role is. So Hadley, let's start with you. Hi everyone, my name is Hadley Hitson. I'm the Rural South reporter at the Montgomery Advertiser, which is part of the USA Today network. I started here over two years ago with Report for America. And so this is my first job right out of college. I graduated from Ole Miss with my journalism degree before that, where I worked with my student paper and all of that. Yes. Awesome, thank you. Danny. Hello, I'm Dana McArthur. I'm the environmental justice reporter at the Gulf States Newsroom, and that's like a collaborative newsroom with NPR and um, radio stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. I've been in this role since about September, and then before that, I was a community voices reporter at a local newspaper called the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal. We covered 16 different counties, and I tried to like really prioritize some of the smaller counties or the ones that didn't have as many of their own newspapers there. You know what I meant to also ask you guys, Danny, could you say where you grew up? Oh, yes. I grew up in a small town in South Georgia called McCray, McCray, Georgia. I guess the fun fact about McCray, Georgia, is it has a replica of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, very small. <laughs> that is a fun fact. And Hadley, where did you grow up? I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. We also have a replica of the Statue of Liberty. Oh, I sense a theme. Sarah, Sarah, it's on you to see if the theme continues. The theme does not continue. I, I'm sorry. I grew up in West Virginia, right along the um, Ohio River. And now I am the editor of the Border Belt Independent. We are a digital nonprofit news organization covering four very rural counties in southeastern North Carolina, formerly with the News and Observer in Raleigh and McClatchy. Awesome. Thank you. So let's get kicked off today by 
talking about what journalists get wrong about rural communities. It's so interesting when we have, there's lots of research about this. It's so interesting when we really dive into and step back and take a look at why people do and do not trust the news and how much that has to do with how they feel like the news is made for or by people like them and how well they feel that people like them are portrayed in the news with how much complexity, with how much accuracy are people actually, do their lived experiences and values show up in news coverage? So I'm gonna ask each of our panelists what they think, what bugs them the most about what journalists get wrong or what bugs their communities the most maybe. So Hadley, let's go back to you. I think that one thing that I've noticed in rural Alabama is that a lot of these towns, these communities I'm going into, they don't have community newspapers, they don't have their own source of news that's for them, at least not one that publishes more than like once a month. And so a lot of times when I'm going in, they have this history in their head of journalists from either other statewide outlets or national outlets who come for the problems. And these communities associate, or a lot of the communities that I've come in contact with, at least they associate journalism with their faults. And I think a big part of that is because in the past, as you know, these news deserts appeared and small local papers kind of went away, there was only a reason to go into these communities when there was something wrong. And so one example is Lowndes County, which is a neighboring county to Montgomery, where I am right now. It has historically lacked access to sewage systems because of the way that the soil is there and just the poverty levels. It costs a lot of money to run a septic tank that's going to work in these areas. And so since that problem kind of became publicized around 2010-ish, they've just had an onslaught of media, politicians, people who will come in, tour their mobile homes where, and see where they have a PVC pipe that is connected to their bathroom, goes out into their backyard, and that's how they get rid of their sewage. And they're used to welcoming people in to walk around and say, wow, this is terrible. We want to fix it. And then those people don't really have any power to fix it or they don't have a solution. And so that was one of the first stories that I actually wrote when I got into this job two years ago, is I went over to the community and wrote about some grant that they had gotten, a very little amount of money to try and solve the problem, but no one really had a solution. And then the more I got to know the people there, I found out that there were these two women who had lived there their entire lives, and they had were looking for the right thing to do. And they've ended up creating this Black Belt Unincorporated Wastewater Program, gotten a lot of funding. And now they, for the past year, they've been for a monthly fee of like $10 per home, installing these septic tanks that actually work and provide a benefit to the community. And that's something that I think was really useful and kind of the opposite of going in just for the problem was me being able to report on that story as it developed and looking to these people these women who were providing the solution instead of just publicizing, you know, look at these terrible problems that this community has. That's fantastic. What kind of response did you get? Did people notice it? 
Yes, yes, it's it's gotten a great response. I've written probably dozens of articles about them and the project at this point and Columbia University got involved to provide funding and it's just been very much a building process of watching more people notice that, hey, we do have a solution there now. Mm-hmm. And the journalism is interested in telling the stories of those solutions, not just the problems. Yes. So besides an overfocus on problems, what else do journalists often get wrong about rural communities, Sarah or Danny? I think what people get wrong is that people in rural communities are stupid and ignorant. <laughs> you know, I think that going in too often, there's this sense of, well, these people aren't going to know anything about what's going on, right? You know, what, what's going on in politics, what's going on around them. And that's simply not true. You know, people are, are very, very aware in, in rural communities And, you know, while their politics have certainly shifted for many, many of them over the past decade or so, they are very much in the know. It's really unfair when when journalists come in thinking that right off the bat. Interesting. Okay. I have more questions about that, but I'm going to go over to Dan. Yeah, I think kind of similar is, yeah, thinking about like when other reporters come in to communities, like kind of parachuting like, I guess, lacking some of that historical context are like only doing like the surface level historical context. And I was like, okay, like with the Jackson water crisis, when that happened, it is like, once like, this is like a big national story, like everyone cares about it. Now we have like the talking points, like, oh, this is because of decades of a lack of funding. And this is happening to a majority black city. And it's like, now everyone is so is acknowledging all that history and whatnot, but it's very much like kind of a news cycle. Like then it stops being the hot topic, and now it's the Missis the Mississippi tornado, like the tornadoes that happened in Mississippi in March, and now that's the story. But like we're in April, and people are starting to move on already, like on the national level. So I don't know, just very much this idea that these are just like popping up issues for folks, but. For these communities, these are like ongoing issues like been living with for like years or decades. And like, this is not a new problem to them. Right, it's new to us. Right. And so we somehow treat it as if it's new, right? Yeah, like, so just acknowledging that, honestly, we're behind really. Cause I'm like, if we have people who've been talking about like 50 years ago having water problems and we're just now writing about it. We're kind of behind on acknowledging that problem. And sometimes the way that we do that can just have such an astounding lack of self-awareness. I was talking to another reporter last week about this topic, and she said that one of her colleagues went to report on an agriculture issue, some sort of agricultural policy issue, and submitted a draft of a story that said, that called the agricultural issue obscure, like an obscure bill working its way through the legislature or something. She's like, I promise you to none of these people is that issue obscure, but we just bring our own frame to it and our own lens. There can be a real benefit to showing up with that learner's mindset. Like, I don't know anything about this. I need to learn, but then the coverage can be very condescending and elitist and out of touch if it acts as if it's new to everybody, right? There's new research out from the Reuters Institute today, actually, that looks at what communities that don't feel that they are accurately covered in the news, what they have to say about that. And it just really reinforces the idea that people can tell when journalists are out of touch with the communities they're covering. They can tell it's obvious in the in the coverage if the journalists are not just just familiar and fluent in the issues and, you know, not quite as relatable. And I wonder, Danny talked about coverage being 
condescending. I feel like, is that a word that resonates for you guys? Do you feel like people feel condescended to? And if so, how so? Yeah, I, I can get started. You know, I, I think that I'm just speaking for, for the communities I cover. I, you know, it, it, that's another thing. I don't want to paint this as sort of rural America, right? Rural America is so nuanced, you know, even from one town to the next or one county to the next. It's really unfair to sort of paint this picture in, in super broad strokes. So just speaking for the communities I cover, they have good reason <laughs> to not trust the national media, right? You know, they are incredibly distrustful of the New York Times, of the Washington Post, in some ways for good reason, right? The Washington Post swooped down and did a story about the Columbus County Sheriff who resigned twice because he was recorded on this phone call making incredibly racist comments about deputies within his own office. So, you know, they they swooped in and, and did that story and you know, they did an okay job, but like others were saying, it really did sort of lack a lot of context. This is a community that has centuries of painful racism, right? If you don't get that across in your story, you're really doing those readers a disservice, right? I cover another county that is home to the Lumbee tribe. It's the largest Native American tribe east of the Mississippi River. Good Lord, if, if anybody has reason... <laughs> <laughs> to not trust the media, right? It would be these folks. And to be honest, they have been treated unfairly by local media. There's no doubt about it. And I hear remnants of it still today from former journalists in the area. And it's really heartbreaking. But yeah, they have every reason to be angry and to be skeptical of the media. One thing I really appreciated when I was getting to know each of you guys and your work is the deep respect that you brought to the conversation about the communities you aim to serve and a recognition that it is really rational for people to not trust journalists. We all exist under this very big umbrella of journalism. And while each of us cannot be held individually responsible for the worst of what happens in the name of journalism, we certainly, it is really rational for people to have a general sense that it is not helpful to them to talk to journalists, that they can't trust that journalists will follow through or tell accurate nuanced stories or represent them in a way that they feel proud of. So I wonder, given that all we can do really is show up individually and earn the right to tell people's stories, I would love to hear from each of you about how you approach that. If you are approaching people for the first time who maybe, maybe they Maybe it's actually sometimes better if they don't know much about you and your work because sometimes you're starting from a deficit or maybe they're, they really feel like their community or they themselves have been harmed by the outlet that you work for or by, by journalists across the state or the nation in general. So with that in mind, how is it that you show up and earn the right for an interview? How do you lay the groundwork for your story in a way that invites people to want to talk to you? Danny, I'll go to you first. I think for me, I'm very much trying to come at it from like, of super humble place because some of these folks like first of all you're talking about like rural places sometimes I'm like I have to do quite a bit of digging to get that number where I can finally talk to someone for a story idea and then you know like maybe they've never talked to a journalist before and you're trying to explain some very specific story idea you've got going on and like so being very knowledgeable of kind of like that disconnect like being very clear this is what I want to do is kind of what I'm thinking but like also I think it's very important for me to like make sure they know that I'm not coming at it with like an agenda I think there is a thought that like with media like they only want to tell like a certain kind of story and that story is not necessarily going to be their story 
And so that's something that I really had to work on when I was reporting on communities is I didn't want, like at the end of the day, when I finished writing my article, I wanted them to be able to say, oh yeah, that is what I said. That is what I meant. So really like taking that time to like understand the community and like, I guess being able to read what a person means behind their words, because like they know what they're talking about. Like they might not say the words like environmental injustice or whatnot, but they are very knowledgeable about environmental injustice because they are living with it. So when you say being clear about, you know, that you go in knowing they they are afraid they might have an agenda, do you actually address that head on? For me, it's more kind of like, I, I'm just like, I just want to know more about this. Like it might be something very vague, like a story I did at the, my newspaper was on Black Cowboys. And that's just very, it's just very, random thing I did not know a lot about this community going in and so I was like I like led with that but I also was like I still want I want to know more and I want other people to know more about this and they didn't think I was going to show up to the little like horse show because they have the horse shows every Sunday and they didn't think I was going to show up but I, I showed up and I stayed for the whole horse show it was very hot but it was fun it's like a carnival that sounds like a day man Sarah let's go to you the question was how you how you introduce yourself, how you lay the groundwork for an interview, how you sort of earn the right to tell people stories. Yeah, so I'll share with you what I did yesterday. There's an organization called North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, and they go around and they distribute clean syringes and condoms and alcohol swabs and, and things like that to um, people who are struggling with, with substance use disorder. And I shadowed the Robinson County liaison for that, that program. So I spent the whole day with her driving around and uh, she had kind of chatted with her clients ahead of time, like, Hey, I'm going to have a reporter with me, you know, feel free to talk to her. You know, they were sort of expecting me, at least some of them, but, uh, you know, approaching folks for a story like that can be really tricky, right? First of all, that this is a very diverse County. I'm very much white, right? <laughs> and, you know, I really approached it as you know, I, I'm not going to hop out of the car and ask you 8 million questions, right? I need to kind of hang out in the background, get a sense of your comfort level. Obviously, I, I'm not going to push if you don't want to be pushed. But, and I found that what worked best yesterday, and surprisingly, most of them did really open up to me. And, you know, they just have amazing stories of resilience and, and also trauma. But I think, you know, after they shared their stories with me, like the most natural question I could ask them was, what do you need, right? What do you need to make your life better? And I, I found that people appreciated that question. And they told me, you know, a lot of them said, we need methadone clinics, we need housing. And of course, this is a region that was devastated by hurricanes in 2016 and 2018, you know, still so much housing has not been rebuilt. But I think asking people, what do you need is such a powerful thing. I'm not going to tell them what they need, right? Who am I? They have plenty of people in their lives telling them what they need. Trust me. <laughs> but to really hear from them is really powerful. You know, I, I got to say, I've been a journalist for a long time. And yesterday was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had as, as a journalist. You know, it raises all sorts of questions about, you know, sort of highlighting people's problems, going back to that sort of poverty porn and, and things like that. So of course, you know, I have to be so careful when I write this story. I'm not trying to capitalize on anyone's struggle, right? But I think, you know, this is sort of ground zero for the opioid epidemic in a lot of ways, especially in North Carolina. 
And I think that so many people don't realize how bad it is. So many people even in that county don't realize how bad it is. So anyway, that's how I spent the day yesterday. And that was my, sort of my approach. And I think it worked pretty well. Thank you. Hadley, let's talk about how you, I'd love to hear from you about how you introduce yourself and earn the right to tell people stories. Yes. So I, I like to go in and when I'm introducing myself to people, start with giving them, you know, just a little layout of what my job is, why I want to be there and whatever connections I have to the community, no matter how distant or far off, because saying that, you know, someone who knows someone who knows them is often really beneficial and then if I don't know anyone, I'll throw in talking about how I'm from Alabama, born and raised, or mention how my grandfather is a farmer in rural Georgia, things like that to let them know that like we share things, like we have things in common and I care about you as a person. And I'm not just, you know, like I said, here to hear what's wrong with your life. And so that's really important. And then like, I think Sarah and Danny were saying, knowing that you know, this person doesn't owe you anything and making sure that you let the interview kind of be on their terms. For most of the people we're interviewing who aren't in positions of power, we're not trying to hold them accountable to anything. We're asking something from them and making that very clear that they're in control of the interview and sharing the information that they want to share and yet not pushing is really important. We're probably about an hour away from Dadeville where the mass shooting happened this weekend. So that's one story that I've been working on since it happened on Saturday night. And I think that that has been a prime example of a ton of media coming in and for the people to show up in person, the journalists who show up in person and lay that groundwork and make sure that the families and the survivors that we're talking to know that we're there to share the story that they have for us. We don't have preconceived notions that we're going to put into what we're writing. We don't have, you know, a pre-written story format that we're going in with. In difficult situations and in situations where you're trying to build trust, I think that those things are really important. That's so interesting. It sounds like, I mean, what you're really talking about, it sounds like is power dynamics. And we know that people see journalists, the journalists fancy themselves to be on the side of people without power. And yet we are perceived as being aligned with people who have power. And actually we are not nearly as cognizant as we should be of the power that we do have and the harm we can cause. And it sounds like Hadley, what you're talking about is trying to even out that dynamic a bit and make sure people understand that in certain kinds of interviews, obviously it's not always the case. You're not always asking for permission for every single thing you're reporting, but in the kinds of stories you're talking about, you're talking about making sure people know that that you want them to feel comfortable with the process and that you are willing to talk about the process and tell the stories that they want you to tell. Yes, definitely. And because I think a lot of times too, the people you're approaching for these interviews, they see you as the journalist who goes to the people in power and criticizes them or points out their flaws and things like that. And making sure that people know that that's not always the dynamic is I think a strong part of it. Danny, one thing you talked to me about that I find really valuable and I know can be helpful in a lot of types of reporting, but I appreciated the way you spoke about it here is the idea of finding trusted guides within a community to sort of pave the way for you. People who might be able to, you know, vouch for you or at least help you get the lay of the land when you can't just uh, 
not everything's findable online, not everything's findable roaming around a, a kind of spread out area. So can you talk a little bit about that strategy? Yes, I very much am big on like the sourcing side of things because with the right sources, you can get anything. Like when I was working at my like newspaper, the person who I would say is my most reliant source was a farmer like she just was a farmer who knew a lot of different farmers and they were very organized everything was like word of mouth so it doesn't it's not in our I guess line of sight but it is happening so for me is acknowledging a lot of this communication is happening not online not in places where I can do a ton of research ahead of time I can find the person who is in the know about this. So like the person who has been in the community for like their whole life or the person who is in contact with a little bit of everyone, like a barbershop. Some of those guys are very involved in their communities and are very invested in the issues surrounding their community. So like finding the people who like are passionate about where they're from and other people in their community. Awesome, thank you. The question of what coverage usually gets wrong or often gets wrong is something I'd like to spend a little bit more time on. What sort of stereotypes are reinforced? What language people use? And I wonder if you guys have, you know, particularly egregious examples, either specific or more general, if you don't want to just out somebody. I think for me, like being based in Mississippi for the past three years is very much this idea that Mississippi is viewed in a very specific lens and it's very condescending. It's very much like, oh, you're in Mississippi, like something is wrong. And the framing Mississippi by all the things that are wrong with it and like framing it by like our politicians who are just like any other (laughs) Southern politicians really. But there's just the idea that Mississippi is so much worse in other places and it's kind of like being like a native southerner it's like definitely something I am familiar with just on a personal level like growing up in Georgia you're always like you know at least I'm not Mississippi you're in Alabama you say that like each state is like kind of like I'm not as bad as that state just getting out of that thing of not just representing the states by like the most egregious actors and people Sarah or Hadley Yeah, I think Alabama is definitely in that same boat where it's like the two of us at the bottom, you know, and it it leads to a lot of people who don't live here saying things like, well, like when something terrible happens or when there's not good infrastructure in Selma and so Selma gets half destroyed by a tornado, things like that, and people say, well, that's what you deserve because these are the politicians you voted for, that's where you live. That's something that I think a lot of people who live here are very used to hearing and defending themselves for. And yeah, I think that that is just something that when we're talking to people to be very clear about, like you said, you know, like making sure that they know we're there for them, not for anything else. So I think that there are, as we look at how journalists cover people along fault lines, as we look at how, at how demographics and 
just interests play out in different communities. I've sensed a theme and I would love to just throw out for you guys, ask for any observations around these four specific fault lines, race in covering small communities, education level, socioeconomics, we talk a lot about poverty, and also age. I think James may have submitted a question beforehand about reaching young people. You know, I think there's this sense that like rural communities are full of uh, older folks. So I wonder if I wonder if we could tease out a little bit how journalists fall into stereotypical coverage or harmful coverage along any of those four fault lines. Sarah, does any of that resonate with you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Let us have it. The counties I cover are not news deserts. Each one has a, a small community paper. One county actually has, has a pretty decent sized community paper, but you know, they are not particularly diverse and I'm not judging them. My organization is, is not very diverse either. Right. But I think that there is still such a lack, even among journalists of understanding of covering racial nuances in rural North Carolina. And again, like I said, I don't want to paint broad strokes, but it's just amazing to me and flabbergasting <laughs> in, in a lot of ways that we still don't have a great sense of how to navigate that. And, you know, I'll go back again to that sheriff who made some really crazy remarks, right? And the, star the story just kept getting crazier and crazier. I went down and did some man on the street reporting. I mean, people were straight up racist. Let's be honest, right? You know, I, I think as journalists, you, let's say when something's racist, something is racist. We can say that, right? You can't just go into a community and pretend like that doesn't exist. It does, you know? You go to downtown Whiteville today and you're going to see more of the upper middle class white folks in, enjoying lunch at the cute little cafes and the coffee shops you go just there in that county, you're not going to get a very good idea of what Columbus County is, right? So you got to go beyond that and recognize there's just so much you have to recognize. And it's hard to do it in one day, you know, when, when you go down there and, and do even man on the street reporting for a day or so, you know, you, you just, I don't know, there's got to be a better way to gain that sort of understanding or else we're, we're just leaving a whole bunch of readers behind. So with that story about the sheriff, I'm curious if you ended up, did you write a story out of those man on the street interviews? And if so, how did you handle, you know, not amplification of racism? How did you handle telling an accurate story of what folks were saying? It was tough, right? In that case, a lot of folks were a lot of white people who I talked to were sort of placing blame on the other candidate for sort of calling attention to this. And it's like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, everybody thinks that, but nobody says, you know, it's just that most people don't say it out loud. Well, then it's our responsibility as journalists. Well, no, <laughs> not everybody does think that way, right? But gosh, yeah, uh, that whole storyline, I learned a lot and it was tricky to navigate and it, it still is continuing to cover stories out of that. I hope that answers your question. I mean, there, there's just no absolutes. You know what I mean? It's just like, I see it every day in coverage. You know, the, there's no one solution. I will say this, not to get on my high horse here, but uh, <laughs> one thing that I absolutely despise about some of the community reporting, and, you know, again, I would never say anything, you know, bad journalists are out there doing the good work, right? There is such a focus on crime reporting, on petty crime reporting, where you show the person's mugshot, 
you know, without a doubt, right? Black people get arrested at, you know, astronomical rates compared to white people. And it's almost like that's all the news has become. And that's really, really unfortunate. And of course, you know, my organization, we don't, we don't cover crime like that. We, we cover crime trends. Man, I just think if we could all like mesh together as a community of journalists and say, let's just not do that anymore. Let's free up our time to explore the issues that do lead to those higher crime rates, the desperation, the poverty, the lack of education opportunities, But anyway, I will step off my high horse now and I I could go on. Wouldn't that be something? I love what you just proposed there. It would be something, wouldn't it? I think we'd live in a better place overall. Imagine the time that could be spent and the page views that could be earned more respectfully. Absolutely. Absolutely. Danny and Hadley, let me turn to you with those four kind of buckets or fault lines I threw out and what is especially you think problematic or challenging about coverage when it comes to age, race, education, and socioeconomic class. Anything you want to riff on there? So in Alabama, in a lot of these rural communities, there is still a lot of segregation. That's just how the communities are and nothing ever changed. And a lot of times it is a difficult line to walk in terms of how to portray that in these stories and present the issues not as race issues, or present them that way if that's what's needed. But one example I can think of is I was actually over the weekend talking with a couple who lives in Beatrice, Alabama, spelled Beatrice, but pronounced Beatrice. And they actually run their community paper there. And they publish like once every other month or something like that. And they were telling me about, not to talk about sewage problems again, but they were telling me about the sewage problems in their town and how it stemmed historically from how it was a problem when they decided to switch over to, the city decided to switch over to municipal sewer from septic tanks and the town pretty much divided. And it's been you know, passed down through everyone talking about what happened and how the, the town was split in half and talked about as a, a race issue where this half of the town, the white half wanted municipal sewer systems and the black half of the town didn't. And talking to this couple, they because they were telling me about a story, they're actually reporting to clarify that because that's not the case at all. And it was it ended up being split between two different community groups who were advocating for one versus the other, but that somehow it became, oh, the black part of the community wants this, the white part of the community wants that. And are you saying that journalists are sort of the ones who were perpetuating a, a lazy narrative around that? Well, Kind of, because that's just how it was recorded for people to talk about. Not that there was a lot of reporting on it or anything. It was really interesting to me to see this couple who discovered this like false narrative almost. And they said, hey, we can do something to correct that. Even if everyone's not going to read it, everyone's not going to know, we're not going to change the way other people have thought about it, but we're going to make it clear. And so I think that that's really interesting. And then also in terms of age as a fault line, a lot of rural Alabama does skew older. Alabama, I think, is aging faster than the national average as a whole. And we see that in a lot of these rural communities. But there are little pockets where younger people are moving and and saying, hey, we can make this town cool kind of a thing. 
like New Bern, Alabama is one where Auburn University kind of created a little like rural satellite campus. And so they have a bunch of young people there. And so it's just kind of like Sarah said, where we can't say that rural America is all one thing from town to town in every state, it's different too, even in the rural areas. So it seems like looking for those sort of outliers could be a way to complicate people's views. Mm -hmm. Danny, what are you thinking as we talk about this stuff? I think for me, I guess, cause I, I don't know if it's like being a journalist of color or just kind of being in states that have large black populations. I don't know, sometimes it feels like black rural folks aren't thought of as like, as default rural folks. Like when people are talking about like a rural place, unless there's a problem. So like in Rolling Fork, like when they have, now that they have all that tornado damage, it's like, okay, now we acknowledge, you know, like this place, but it's also interesting because that part of the Delta also has dealt with like generations of flooding. And that's like, it's just been like a periodic thing and a very much back and forth. It was so interesting. You were, you talked a lot about education when we spoke to, or just about how much people know about, you know, you cover climate and how much, whether people are familiar with the latest research or not, or have degrees in things, how much people know about things, how easy it is to portray people as um, someone else said that earlier as being uneducated. I'm really chewing Sarah on what you were saying about how to report on racist remarks, because it's a really important to call racism what it is. And it's important to document that that's that it's there and that it's part of the story. It's also important not to assume, not to paint a picture that reinforces lazy narratives about small towns or about conservatives that, you know, they're, they're very sensitive to feeling like they're portrayed as bigoted or racist or, or just, you know, not very worldly. And it seems like there's, when you're reporting one specific story, how do you hold those dangers? How do you hold the need to be more complex and be mindful of what larger narrative this story is a part of? I'll throw that out to any of you. Well, I'll speak to that particular story. I'll be honest, my boss and I butted heads a little on some of the comments that I did include in that story. And I said, you know what? Real people told me this. <laughs> you know what? I think that so often, at least in the communities I serve, racism lives very much just below the surface and it permeates every single aspect of life. But, you know, I cover a region that is deeply religious. You know, people will comment on their Christian faith and just about any chance they can get in a lot of ways. Yet, you know, they say some pretty racist things sometimes. And while I don't want to amplify, unnecessarily amplify, you know, Joe Blow's comments about, you know, it's also important to acknowledge that that thinking does exist for some folks, right? How can we as journalists encourage an open, honest conversation when even we aren't being open and honest in our coverage of what people are telling us. And, you know, I, I really saw it as a responsibility to my readers to say, you know, I, I went out and I talked to people and, and this is what they said. And of course it, it wasn't just like a Q and A story, you know, it, it was sort of this deeper story about the culture of things that, that were happening. Again, I felt like it was my responsibility. I think there were probably journalists who would very much disagree with me in the way I did that story. And that's okay. Interesting. Be interesting to, to experiment with what transparency can be helpful there around, you know, just being clear, telling the story of what you're trying to do. Absolutely. 
Yeah. You know, someone commented in the chat about solutions-based journalism. That's all about what we're trying to do, right? We can highlight problems to the end of days and there are endless problems. <laughs> but unless we're kind of talking to folks who have some solutions, like Hadley was saying, what good are we doing? So, you know, we're all about trying to start conversations. And again, being open and honest and completely transparent in our coverage is really key to that. Thank you so much for that. I'm interested in talking. Sarah, you cued me up nicely, teed me up nicely with the comment about butting heads with your boss, because I'm interested in what you wish your colleagues would do and what you wish the rest of the newsroom would do. Newsrooms are not full of people who have deep experience in rural communities. They are also not always full of people who recognize that they lack the awareness that would make their coverage more accurate or complex or sensitive. I wonder what you think about the, like, if you guys ever sort of serve as sensitivity readers for your colleagues, like other people who are covering a story and you feel like you, that what you've learned either through your own lived experiences or through your existing coverage, what you've learned, what it might look like to share and help educate the rest of the community. And I wonder what you think of the way your newsroom spends its resources. And if you just, if you could have a wish for your colleagues or your newsroom, about better coverage of rural communities, what would it be? Hadley, I'll start with you. Well, at the Montgomery Advertiser, we're lucky that we do have people that are very aware of rural Alabama in our newsroom, and a lot of them grew up in rural towns. When I first started, one of our, one of my fellow reporters, he grew up in Selma, and then now lives and reports in another rural part right outside of Montgomery. So we have a lot of people that are very knowledgeable, but I guess the one thing I would wish is that that everyone would think more about how issues statewide apply to rural communities, because it's easy when we're writing statewide stories to, you know, include a graph about how this is going to impact rural Alabama, especially in the state legislature, things like that. And so I think that that's like what I would consider to be a relatively easy thing to do to pull in that audience. Just like a stakeholder that's sort of getting missed in a lot of the ways we conceive of stories. Definitely. Okay. Danny, how about you? So I'm in an interesting situation where the newsroom I'm in currently is very different than the experience I've had with news. And I'm like, I feel supported. But coming from local news, I am very passionate about local news, but there are a lot of challenges that are baked into it. And some of them, I feel like we could address some of these head on. So like for me, with local news, I'm like, it just always kind of gets me when we're in these communities, especially being in these communities in the South and the news staff is just all white people. And I've very much been like the only Black reporter on staff before. And it is a very, I guess, tough-ish kind of place to be in that I put this pressure on myself to be able to represent like marginalized communities because otherwise they're not like really getting covered like on a daily basis. The thing is like, with, even though I was in like these white newsrooms, it's like people acknowledged that that was a problem. And like they acknowledged that they had these blind spots, but then nothing was like ever done to correct these blind spots. And so I guess kind of after a while, it's just like, you, it's like we cannot train ourselves out of like the need for more diversity honestly. So just hire different yeah. is what you're asking of the industry and of, of newsrooms. That sounds so exhausting. I'm so sorry. That's the situation you have found yourself in. Sarah, how about you? I would say 
And I don't think this is just about covering rural communities, though, because I this was my gripe sometimes about reporters I had at the News and Observer <laughs> was stop talking to the mayor and the economic development director and nobody else, right? Like get out and talk to real people. That's where your story is, especially I think outside journalists, right? Who sort of swoop in and it's like, let's talk to the mayor. Well, that's fine. Talk to the mayor, but also, you know, go talk to somebody from who who's, you know hanging out in their backyard or whatever, you know, talk to real people. And you're right that that cuts across reporting, but it could be especially helpful. The less you know about a community, the more fact-finding you need to do. I'm going to take moderator's privilege here and just take one more question here that's in the chat and then we will sign off. I understand if you have to go. Thank you so much for this time we spent together. But I think Don's question is really interesting about the relationship between journalists and community and how rooted in the community you need to be in order to cover it, in order to have the credibility to cover it. And so Don's asking, can you take over a publication? Do you need to get involved? Do you need to be like rooted in a community before you can authoritatively lead coverage of a community? And I wonder what your guys' thoughts on that would be. I'm going to be eternally optimistic and say, yes, you can effectively go into a community where you do not live and cover it accurately and fairly and gain the respect of, of the people who live there. I will say I, I moved to Robinson County for a year. I spent a year there, but I realized not every journalist would have that opportunity or, or sort of the means to do that, right? I, I just bought a house in Raleigh. I rented it out and it's like, I'm, I'm out of here for a year. I'll be back. You know, I feel honored that I had that opportunity. But, you know, we're looking to hire a new reporter. I can't convince a reporter to live there. I would guarantee it almost. It's really tough. We have to go into hiring mode thinking you don't have to live in that community. You have to come to that community Mm -hmm. sometimes. You have to spend time there, but you do not have to live there. And invest in learning. As Shannon just said in the chat, the key is the listening. The key is the humility. He is understanding how much you have to learn and being willing to listen and get to know folks. So um, thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Hadley, Sarah, and Danny. I appreciate your time and thank y'all for the good conversations. We're definitely interested in doing more work on this at Trusting News. I think there's a lot of a lot of insights from you guys that the rest of the industry really needs. So I was taking good notes and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to a panel discussion on building trust with rural communities, moderated by Joy Mayer of Trusting News. You can find out more information about the discussion and view a video of the webinar at betternews.org. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.